Welcome to the Birth Like a Mammal podcast. Birth Like a Mammal is a community created for both parents and birth workers to learn and understand how birth was designed to function in alignment with mammalian biology. I'm your host, Lindsay Askins. I'm a doula and birth coach, a mother of three, and an expert on mammalian biology. I have a degree in animal science, spent many years breeding horses, and have given birth like a mammal three times. After a decade of supporting families as a doula, it's clear to me that obstetrics makes no connection to mammalian biology in regards to birth. And as a result, we have a high rate of complications for mothers and babies giving birth. Whether you are a parent or a doula, I created this podcast and this community to teach you what it means to birth like a mammal. Humans are mammals, and we are designed to birth like mammals. Let's get started. Hello, hello. We are back on the Birth Like a Mammal podcast. This is episode eight. So crazy. Eventually, these are going to be weekly podcasts, but with everything on my plate right now, every other week is what we're doing. So I hope you're enjoying them. I hope that you're sharing them. If you have time to review us on Apple or Spotify, we'd really appreciate it. That really helps us out. While this podcast is designed and geared and literally about mammalian birth, I also want it to be informative in a general sense regarding pregnancy and choices that we make, you know, at the end of our pregnancy leading up to birth. So a while back, I put a post out on Instagram and asked our audience, hey, what are, you know, some podcast topics you're interested in? And we got a pretty good list. I shared it at the time. If you saw that, maybe you remember, and I have it saved. But one of the requests, I think it was actually on there twice, was the topic of placental calcification. Why that happens, when it happens, how often it happens, why are we worried about it? And I believe that there is, of course, (laughs) a lot of misconception in the world of obstetrics regarding this topic. And in my research for this episode, I also learned that there's not a lot of studies or data about this particular topic. So that leads me to believe that often when we are in prenatal appointments, we're not getting the full uh, story or picture because obstetrics doesn't even have the full story or picture. So Today's episode is designed to be informative. I hope this is helpful to some of you who may be concerned about this. Also, even if you're not concerned about it, this is really great knowledge to have in the case that you get to your eighth month of pregnancy and your care provider is like, oh, we're concerned about your calcified placenta. We need to induce your baby. You're like, actually, and you have like a bunch of knowledge and information in your brain. So you're not completely sideswiped by that suggestion. So basically, what is placental calcification? It's basically when you have calcium, they're actually calcium phosphate mineral deposits in your placenta, in the placental tissue. I've done placenta encapsulation for a decade now. I've seen it. It's obvious what it is. I don't know if you've seen anything else that's been, quote, calcified. We live in Arizona currently, and our water is really hard here. We have to add water. Most people have water softeners in their homes. And so you often see a calcified water heater, which basically means there's so much calcium buildup 
and, and other minerals from the water in the bottom of the water heater that the water heater tank is no longer holding as much water as it was is supposed to or designed to because the calcium deposits are taking up a lot of space in the tank. So I've seen that on a placenta too. It's not a big deal. When encapsulating, I just cut that part off. We just discard it. And it's not something that keeps us from encapsulating. So the problem is placental calcification, if it's bad enough, extreme enough, it does have an association with adverse maternal and fetal clinical outcomes. These can be things like preterm birth, preeclampsia, fetal growth restriction. So you'll hear like IUGR often is a, a reason for induction. So it's not, it means the placenta isn't functioning at its optimal level, just like the water heater. Like the water heater is not heating up as much water because the calcification is in the way. So same thing. This is inhibiting the placenta to function as designed slash optimally. So there does become calcified deposits towards the end of pregnancy anyway, like regardless of anything. A 42-week placenta doesn't look like a 39-week placenta, generally speaking. So it's it's supposed to happen anyway, like it does happen anyway. But like I said, it, when it's really excessive and it's preterm, so earlier than the end of pregnancy, that's when we have decreased blood flow and this is when we start having fetal complications like growth restriction. So the stats are more than 50% of placentas develop some degree of calcification at full term. I know ACOG likes to talk about full term being 39 weeks, but I think that's a load of trash. And I'm going to call full term 42 weeks, which again, like I've said in previous episodes, it's not that exact, but it's certainly not 40 weeks. Generally speaking, there's too many factors at play. So a 42-week placenta, my second baby was almost 42 weeks when she was born. And you know what? We encapsulated that placenta ourselves. And I honestly don't remember if it had calcium deposits or not. I have a picture of it somewhere. But it probably had more than my other daughters who were born before that. So more than 50% of placentas develop some degree of calcification at full term. Then the incidence of preterm calcification has a pretty wide range. And it goes from 3.8% all the way up to 23.7%. But even at the high end of 23.7%, that's like two in 10 women, which I don't know, maybe you think that's high. I don't. And generally speaking in America, more than two in 10 women are extremely unhealthy all the time, but during pregnancy. So here comes that little annoying health factor that obstetrics never likes to recognize when it comes to, quote, complications in pregnancy and birth. So we all know that more than 20% of the American population is not healthy, not optimally healthy, not functioning as designed. So of course that would carry over into pregnant women as well, right? That's just basic logic. So here we go. Here are some things, some factors that contribute to preterm placental calcification. Smoking, okay, pregnancy-induced hypertension, so people who have high blood pressure only while pregnant. Placental abruption, which is very rare, and this is when the placenta actually starts detaching from the wall of the uterus, really even more rare that that would happen preterm. Usually that's something that happens in labor. And usually that is also a caused problem, which is a different topic for a different day, but can happen from previous scar tissue, stress, diet, et cetera. Another factor, bacteria in the placenta, which, you know, is not always under our control. But again, 
when we are healthy and our gut flora is functioning optimally, it's less likely that we'll have bacteria in our placenta or anywhere in our body that's not supposed to be there. Environmental factors, including exposure to radiation, ultrasounds, or low-frequency sound, ooh, also ultrasounds, interesting. I'd like to slip in at this point and say I looked up in my research for this episode to see if there was any studies showing the correlation between ultrasounds and placenta calcification, and shockingly, there are none. Okay, so there are very rare cases, uh, I would say a very small percentage of women, probably less than the 3.8%, which is the low end of preterm placental calcification, that are exposed to like environmental radiation out of their control, right? Like that's a pretty crazy Aaron Brockovich kind of situation. But ultrasounds, Wi-Fi, cell phones, iPads, Bluetooth, your earbuds, all this stuff, y'all, is radiation. Your electric car, radiation. Hate to break it to you. EMF is a form of radiation. So all of that stuff can affect our lives, our health, but especially our pregnancies, our placentas. And then low-frequency sound, I mean, ultrasound is sound waves. How many times have you heard someone say, oh, you know, we tried to get a 4D, but the little bugger just kept turning his head or kept moving or wouldn't stay still? Yeah, because you're blasting this poor baby with sound waves. They don't like that. It probably hurts. I had a whole bunch of my first pregnancy because I didn't know, but now you know. Okay, and then another factor is reactions to medications. So here, some examples they have is antacids. So I'm thinking about women who have a lot of acid reflux. You know, people have that during pregnancy and they're taking Tums or whatever. Like that could be a thing. That's a, that's a ton of calcium. And then I thought this was really interesting. Vitamin supplements. How many of us are told to take prenatal vitamins before we even get pregnant, but all during pregnancy? So now this is my little science nerd brain. I want to go down the rabbit hole and look up all the like mainstream prenatal vitamins and see what the calcium percentage is. So this has vitamin supplements with excessive calcium, which, you know, say you're somebody that gets a lot of calcium within your diet, and now you're also taking this like really high dose vitamin supplement that's probably not even food-based and it's made in the lab and it's total trash anyway, and it has a bunch of calcium in it. Well, now you're overdoing the calcium. I mean, we, we can overdo anything, right? We can overdose on water, literally. So if we're not paying attention to like the calcium amount in our diet, and then now we're taking this like extra vitamin because we're pregnant and it has a bunch of calcium and we're not paying attention to any of that, we may be ODing on calcium, really. Okay, and then the last one said major prenatal stress. And again, there's not a lot of data or studies or numbers around how much stress, what type of stress, any of that. They haven't really researched that. So when we're talking about placental calcification and things that you could do to avoid it, obviously don't smoke, but I think we already know that. This goes for secondhand smoke. Secondhand smoke can also increase your risk of placental calcification. Also, your risks with placental calcification are also higher if you've got prenatal hypertension. So that's something you can mitigate before it even happens. Like make sure you're eating in a way that's not going to raise your blood pressure. If every time you go to a prenatal appointment, they tell you you have high blood pressure, start paying attention to how you feel after you leave the appointment. Get Get your own cuff and take your blood pressure at home and see if it's the same. I know many, many women who have, quote, high blood pressure, but really they only have high blood pressure when they go into their prenatal appointments because they're stressed out because the office is stressful and disrespectful and coercive and manipulative and they're getting rushed through and the bedside manner is terrible and all of that just makes her blood pressure go up. So 
I would definitely double check if someone tells you you have prenatal hypertension. Get a second opinion, go to a different care provider, get a blood pressure cuff at your house, take it yourself, and make sure you do actually have that. If you do, you can change your diet, you can change your stress load, you can change your lifestyle. I don't want to hear from the audience right now about how you don't have choice and you can't change these things. Yes, you can. We all have choice all the time. The other one was gestational diabetes can also be fixed with diet. Your OB probably won't tell you how because they don't know how. Anemia was another one. So all of these things you need to handle because they all contribute to placental calcification. You can't just go through pregnancy and be like, oh, well, I've got gestational diabetes. There's things you can do to handle that. Diet is number one eating lots of antioxidants, making sure you're drinking enough water, getting enough protein, getting enough sleep, all of those things. Overall, in my research, I discovered that the clinical research on placental calcification is limited and discordant. So we don't have a lot to go off with, like I said when I started this episode. So when we're being told things at the OB's office, I'm just sort of kind of wondering what they're basing that off of. And it may just be whatever statements ACOG is putting out, but where's ACOG getting these things? An interesting study that I found was they took normal pregnant women and then they took high-risk pregnant women. And they found that when they compared them for placental calcification, they, they grade levels of placental calcification. And when they put those two groups side by side and compared them, their average grades were similar. They weren't that different. However, those that ranked higher grades in placental calcifications, like worse, was hypertension and IUGR, which is interuterine growth restriction, obviously, because if there's some calcification, the baby's not getting a full blood supply, not growing correctly. So those people in those categories had higher grades of placental calcification. And then the ones that actually were associated with lower grades were people with gestational diabetes and the RH sensitization. Those actually made it lower, which I think is really fascinating. And then something that we also probably don't hear in our care provider's office is hormones. Hormones are literally poised to regulate placental calcification. They have so many jobs, but if your hormones are totally out of whack while pregnant, that could lead to placental calcification. Another factor in this particular study where they were comparing these people is successive pregnancies or exposure to mineral imbalance. So that goes back to what I was saying, like if your diet and your vitamins are off, that can amplify your risk. Some other things, they found some links with placental calcification was inflammation, which most of us have on some level because we have crappy food in the U.S., gestational cardiovascular symptoms. So like bradycardia, tachycardia sometimes shows up in pregnancy. Aging, which mm, the jury's out on that. And multiple molecular pathways. So this is getting a little too like sciencey and geeky, but they did some cultures and stuff and they found that like endothelial dysfunction can amplify the risk of placental calcification. And again, this all just goes back to how our body's functioning, right? Is it functioning as designed? Is it functioning optimally? No? Okay, it's probably our diet. It's probably our stress level. It's probably our sleep situation. It's probably our lifestyle for all of us. So 18% of placentas at about 33 weeks of pregnancy were showing a severe grade 3 calcification. But again, like I mentioned, 
more than 18% of people are not healthy. Their, their bodies are not functioning optimally or ideally or as designed. So the math kind of checks out that we would have 18% of pregnant women showing severe grade calcification. 33 weeks is what, about seven and a half months pregnant, eight months, eight months pregnant. That makes sense. Another thing that came up was bacterial infections. Bacterial infections may play an important role in placental calcification. We kind of can't always prevent when we get sick, but if you are eating well, like whole foods, you guys, like organic produce, you're not eating pesticides, meat from animals that have been raised as they are designed, you know, so for cows, that's out eating on a green pasture, like these buzzwords, grass-fed beef and free-range eggs and all this, they're, they're just describing how those animals are supposed to eat and live. Like livestock, we're not designed to eat grain. We give them grain because they don't have enough nutrient-dense forage. I give my horse grain twice a day because I don't have enough nutrient-dense forage, hay, to give her. Also, she's very old and she's lost a lot of teeth and she has a really hard time eating hay now. So I have to supplement grass pellets for her. But either way, the idea that we are just going to like throw cows in feedlots and give them corn, that's not what they're supposed to eat and that's not where they're supposed to be. So when you then slaughter that cow and eat that meat, that's not the same meat as somebody who has a bunch of cows on on 100 acres of green luscious grass. Like those are completely different animals on completely different diets, living completely different lifestyles. You get completely different meat. Side note, I have a degree in animal science and I took a meat science class during my curriculum, so I actually do know what I'm talking about when it comes to cuts of meat. So when we're eating crappy commercial meat and crappy commercial eggs from chickens that live in cages and never see the light of day and don't eat bugs from the earth, and we're eating cheese and milk from commercial dairies where cows are standing in their own shit and they're eating corn all day and they never see grass, like when we're eating that, our body is not functioning the way it's supposed to, the way it's expecting to. So you're more susceptible to that bacterial infection, which then may put you in a risk category for placental calcification. So all of that being said, it just goes back to like your diet is so, so important, not just during pregnancy, but always, all the time. You should be very choosy about what you're eating, especially when you're pregnant. So I would really like to know, of course, they're probably never going to do this study, but when they have these stats of like these 18% of placentas and the range of, you know, the 3.8 to 23%, like obviously the 18% is kind of, well, almost in the middle. What it, what are the lifestyles of those people? You know, what is their, what's their weight? What's their active hours during the day? What's their job? How much do they sit? How many hours a night do they sleep? What kind of meat do they eat? What kind of water do they drink? That's another one. Do they just drink crappy cow's milk? Do they drink milk at all? You know what I mean? Like there's like so many different ways we can eat. Do they make their own bread? Do they buy processed bread at the store? Do they eat a bunch of packaged food? Do they eat a bunch of candy? Do they crush ice cream every night? Like there's just so many factors in diet alone that it's really hard to do any of these studies. But what I keep seeing over and over with the placental calcification is it really just kind of goes back to your diet. Like your gestational diabetes, diet. Your bacteria and your placenta, diet. You couldn't fight it off. Taking medications, you could probably fix that with diet. Your vitamin supplements, they should be based in food, not lab-produced, synthetic, disgusting stuff. Anemia, food. You can fix that with food. This all just seems like a diet problem. And if you're going to an allopathic care provider, they're not going to tell you that. They're not going to bring up this part of the discussion. Your hormones, dysregulated, 
and unable to regulate the placental calcification, diet, food, minerals, nutrients, all of it. So overall, what I'm getting out of this whole thing is placental calcification is sort of presented to us as like this random happenstance. And oh no, you're going to get it if you go past 40 weeks. No, no, you're not. Does it happen the longer you are pregnant because it happens towards the end of pregnancy? Sure. Are you going to be pregnant for 48 weeks and your placenta is going to totally calcify? No, your baby's going to come out before that. Does your placenta or your baby know the difference between 39 weeks and 41 weeks? No. They just know they're not done cooking. If you're not a smoker, seems like you're probably in the clear. If you don't have pregnancy-induced hypertension, seems like you're in the clear. If you don't have a reason to have a placental abruption, again, those aren't just random or happenstance in most cases. Seems like you're in the clear. If your body is functioning optimally and your terrain in your body is in good shape, why do you have a bacteria infection? You don't have a bacteria infection. Your body fought it off. If you are living in an environment where you are exposed to radiation all the time, go outside and get away from it as often as you can. If you work in an office building all day and you're blasted with Wi-Fi all day, or you live in an apartment building in a city, and even if you turn your Wi-Fi off, all your neighbor's Wi-Fi is still on, go outside as much as you can. Get away from it. Don't just stay in it all the time. Don't take medication if you can help it. If you're having some acid reflux, change your diet. There might be a food that's causing that. Sometimes it's baby's positioning, just the way they are, and they're pushing up on your diaphragm. Do you know Spinning Babies, spinningbabies.com? They've got all kinds of crazy positions and stuff to help babies get in different positions. That's an option. If you have major prenatal stress, do everything you can to get rid of it. If it's a person, get rid of them. If it's your job, get rid of it. If it's your living situations, change it. Do whatever you can to get rid of the stress during pregnancy. Okay, so just real quick, I want to talk about symptoms, just so you know that too. One of the most common symptoms that women with a calcified placenta feel, describe, know about is their baby seems to move less than normal or maybe even stops moving altogether. And you probably already know if you've already had a baby or you're far along in your pregnancy, your baby should be moving at some amount of sort of consistent rate. And so if you notice that that stops, that could be a, it could be a lot of things, but it could be a symptom of placental calcification. So in general, I feel like there's really not a lot to talk about here, but what I got out of all of this, and I hope what you got out of this, is your placenta is not going to just calcify itself and blow up and stop functioning just because you go past 40 weeks. That's not going to happen. If you're a smoker, if you have hypertension, if you've had a previous cesarean maybe or some sort of scar tissue, if you're sick with a bacteria infection, if you're exposed to a lot of radiation if you've done a ton of ultrasounds, if you're taking chronic medication or if you're taking crappy vitamins or vitamins with too much calcium in them, or you're super, super stressed, then yeah, you might be a candidate for placental calcification come 40, 41 weeks. Maybe. Not necessarily. But all of those things I just listed contribute to it. So if you have one or more of them, it might just be something you should pay attention to. It's not something to freak out about. It's just something that should be on your radar screen. But in general, for the average healthy, quote, normal pregnancy, none of us should be freaking out about placental calcification. This is something that happens in rare circumstances to people with these contributing factors. And if you don't have any of those contributing factors and you're only 39 weeks pregnant, just keep being pregnant. Your baby will come out when it's ready. It's not just going to stay in there and let the placenta calcify and kill it. Like that's not how, that's not how nature works. So 
this entire episode was to give you some knowledge and power and information so that if you get into a prenatal appointment where this comes up, you already know your stuff. You already know your numbers. You already know your stats. You already know the story. You already know that we don't have a lot of studies on this. And the studies we do have are, quote, limited and discordant. So we already know that, like, we're not working with a lot of information here, at least not broad, comprehensive information. So don't let this be something that scares you. And the fact that this came up as podcast topic ideas kind of made me think that this was a concern for some people. Maybe maybe it happened in a previous pregnancy. Maybe your care provider made a comment and now it's stuck in your head and you can't unhear it. So I hope this has been helpful and a way for you to sort of take deep breaths. If you need further information on this, please reach out. You can shoot us a message on Instagram at birth like a mammal. You can also email us at join at birthlikeamammal.com. We're happy to help help you with some resources. I can give you some of the some of the uh, studies I used for this episode. I really should put them in the show notes, but I just have too many things to juggle in the air. I probably won't ever get to it. But if you'd like them, I can give them to you. So please ask. If you're looking for more support during your pregnancy, planning your baby's birth, we have one-to-one coaching options on the website, birthlikeamammal.com backslash learn. You can also take a birth prep class with me. I'm working on setting up a group birth prep class for later this spring, mostly because I want you guys to meet other people and kind of build some community there, but also it's a little more budget-friendly. I also offer a dad doula class, which we could talk about things like this in the dad doula class because I sometimes I find that, that things like this get stuck in dad's heads and they're stuck on numbers and data and they're fearful about things like this. So often when you give them more information, they're like, oh, okay, this isn't so scary. So anyway, we can help you. Please reach out. You can go to birthlikeamammal.com. And if you click learn on the menu options, those are all of our support options there. Secondly, we finally launched our store. We have a whole bunch of t-shirts and tumblers, mugs, hats. There's a bag, a spiral notebook, which would be a great thing to keep notes of podcast episodes and other things that we put out there for you to learn and grow with. And you can find that at birthlikeamammal.com backslash shop. And what I think I'm going to do is take a percentage of all of our earnings from that and try to sponsor women who need a doula but can't afford it. So obviously I need to sort of design that program, but just know that a portion of what you spend on our shop will go to helping women who need doulas. I hope you're having a great week. I hope wherever you are, the weather's awesome. For me, I wish there was snow outside, but that's okay. There isn't any. Maybe you hate the snow that's outside of your window. I'll switch places with you. I hope everybody's well. We thank you so much for your support. We thank you for being here and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you so much for being here today. The Birth Like a Mammal podcast is produced by me, Lindsay Askins. It is edited by Stephanie Weniger. If you enjoyed this episode or want to learn more, please reach out at join at birthlikeamammal.com. Birth Like a Mammal offers courses, classes, webinars, coaching, and an upcoming book. You can also follow us on both Instagram and TikTok at Birth Like a Mammal. If you have not subscribed to our newsletter, head over to birthlikeamammal.com and subscribe now. My subscribers are the first to know when new podcast episodes drop, in addition to receiving the free monthly call link on the first Sunday of every month. That link goes out to subscribers only. If you learned something today, please share this community with anyone who is pregnant or supporting families during pregnancy and birth. 
Have a great rest of your day.